Our scripture reading today is from Philemon 8 through 18. Accordingly, though I am bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Okay, we're halfway, believe it or not, we're halfway through our sermon series on Philemon. We have today and then next week, um, and then we'll be done, but we are squeezing all we can out of this, out of this short letter. Sorry, I'm just going to rearrange furniture real quick. All right. So this is the third part where we're going to focus today really on the recipient of the letter, the Apostle Paul. And it's a really good invitation, studying a letter like this, uh, to see how intricately beautiful and perfectly wise uh, God's Word is, in particular in the way that he is building his church on earth. Every single person in this room has a story to tell. Nobody has a simple story. Nobody has a simple story. And today we're going to focus on the story of the author of the letter here. Around 34 AD, there was a man named Saul who was on his way to the city of Damascus, and he carried with him a document. And this was a document that gave him authority to hunt down and bring to trial anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this quest that he was on was his own idea. He came up with this. It was a passion of his. And as he approached Damascus, suddenly there was a light from heaven that flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is depicted with the Caravaggio painting on the back wall of the sanctuary. One of the things I love about the painting is it's a moment where it's the moment where Saul falls off of his horse and is blinded, and the, the darkness and the compactness of the composition from Caravaggio gives kind of a claustrophobic feel to what was happening for Saul. It had to have felt that way, that the world got really dark and really small all in a moment. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. What was he to do? Well, Jesus was making Saul his apostle to the Gentile world throughout the Roman Empire. 
That's huge. And so Saul took his Greek name, Paul, and he spent the next 33 years of his life planting churches throughout Asia Minor. So that encounter on the road to Damascus happened in 34 AD. In 57 AD, 23 years after his conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel, and there he was arrested. And what followed was a series of releases and arrests and trials that took him from Jerusalem to Rome, where he was imprisoned in 62 AD. And then he was released and continued a ministry in Rome until he was rearrested again in 64 AD. And history suggests that that was the arrest that ended with his eventual martyrdom. By the end of his life, Paul had seen and done it all. He had seen Jesus work miracles. You can read about those in Acts 15, for example. He had been beaten and thrown into jail several times. We can read about that in Acts 16, 21, 24. He was in jail a lot. He'd seen people rush to his aid, like we read about in Philippians 2. And he'd seen people just run for cover to get as far away from him as they could. We read about that in Acts 15 as well. He had traveled far. He had preached Christ. He had established churches. He had fought heresies. He had encouraged the faithful from one end of Asia Minor to the other. And early on in his ministry, one of the things that Paul talks about wanting is he talks about wanting to go preach Christ in Rome, the heart of the world. And though it would be as a prisoner, still the old apostle made it. He made it to Rome. And with countless brothers and sisters in Christ scattered abroad who had come to know Jesus through his ministry, even as a prisoner, Paul was well-loved. In fact, Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, found Paul presumably because of Paul's reputation for loving the lost. And Onesimus came to faith in Christ and became like a son to Paul. The previous two messages, if, you, <clears throat> if this is your first time joining us in this series, the previous two messages, the first one is about Onesimus, and the second one is about Philemon <clears throat> and their stories. But what we know about them is is that both of them knew, Paul and Onesimus, that if Onesimus was now Philemon's brother in Christ, the two of these men should be reconciled to each other. And so having played a part in Philemon's conversion, Paul writes this short letter to go with Onesimus's return to Philemon. And so around 62 AD, near the end, about two years before he was martyred, here's what he wrote. Mary Linda read the first part of it. I'm going to continue it on just a few more verses. Um, Actually, I'll pick up with verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, he says to Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. And if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
Then he says this, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. In this letter, we noted that it takes a while for Paul to mention Onesimus by name. And the reason, it's like verse 10 when he finally mentions Onesimus' name. And the reason why is because Paul is meaning to ask Philemon to do something, and what he's asking him to do, he knows, has to come from the context of who the three of them are to each other. And so he's laying groundwork there. Who are the three of them to each other? Well, here's some things they have in common. One thing they have in common, all three of these men were people who had lived major portions of their lives outside of a relationship with Jesus. So all of them had been outside of Christ into their adulthood. All three of them were also people whose lives had been transformed by Jesus himself. And Paul was present for the conversions of both Onesimus and Philemon. And he has this deep affection for both of them, as though they're, they're brothers of his and also as, as though they're sons in the faith for him. And so he takes time not only to outline why he loves Philemon, but also why he loves Onesimus. And though he could have simply said that he loved Onesimus, Paul goes even further to say, this is what I mean when I say I love Onesimus. He calls him his son. He calls him his very heart. And he does this because he wants Philemon to know the depth of his love for Onesimus. Martin Luther, in writing about this passage, he noted in this letter that Paul plays the role of Christ in the drama between Philemon and Onesimus. And he identifies with both the sinner and the offended party. And what's interesting about this letter is both are each. So Philemon is both the sinner in this equa equation and he also is an offended party because Onesimus stole from him. And Onesimus is both a sinner and an offended party because he's offended in the sense that he was formerly the property of this other man. And Paul plays the role of, of, of Christ in the work of reconciling them and setting them at peace with one another. This is what Christ does in the drama between God and man, right? And this is what we are all called to do in our relationships with one another, it's part of the blessing and the prayer over each child up here who was baptized today. Not only that they would know the Lord, but that others would know the Lord through them. And so Paul's plea for peace is calling both of these men, Philemon and Onesimus, into a deeper level of Christ-likeness. It wasn't just for Onesimus that Paul's heart was concerned here. He's also pastoring his old friend, Philemon. See, God is moving in all three of them, and he's moving all three of them deeper and deeper into the unfolding purpose that he had for their lives, a purpose to redeem the lost while bringing glory to the name of his own son, who is our peace. And so he calls the two of them to live together as brothers, not as slave and master. 
We read this letter, it's something that comes up and it's a fair question to ask when we read the book of Philemon. Why didn't Paul just declare slavery to be unbiblical and renounce it? Why didn't he use his, his, his platform as an apostle to do that? You might read the letter and wonder why Paul didn't take this opportunity to speak out against institutionalized slavery. I have several thoughts on this, but the first thought I will say is he absolutely did. He absolutely did, and he did it as somebody who had skin in the game. He did it as somebody who was calling for something so revolutionary. We live in a time where if people, if there's something to be offended about and you're on social media, people will say, well, you have an obligation to speak out against it on social media. And I think social media doesn't, isn't, isn't owed anything from you, right? It's, it's not. And to speak out against something on social media does not mean you're doing anything about it, right? But what does Paul do? Here's two people. Onesimus, a runaway slave, Philemon, a former slave owner. Both of them have come to Christ. What he does with them is so against institutional slavery, it is radically profound. Here's what he does. He opposes slavery on the most effective and foundational level that he could. He appealed to a slave owner to regard his runaway slave as a brother, as an equal brother in Christ, and he appealed to Onesimus to do the same with Philemon. There is nowhere to go in that equation, right? There's nowhere to go but to deal honestly with who Christ has made them in their relationship with each other. Paul appeals to these two participants who are participants in a system of slavery to see each other's inherent dignity as brothers in Christ. And that is deeply abolitionistic. If this were to spread, slavery would collapse in on itself. Because how could they see each other in this way that they are brothers in Christ and still see them as one being owned by the other. It's impossible. And so Paul is undermining any hint of any right that anyone could ever claim over another person as their personal property. There's no place for it. And instead, he sets the example that their lives should be offered for the sake of each other. Notice the heart of Paul's argument here. I love it. It's not just... The heart of Paul's argument isn't that Philemon as a Christian should apply some wildly out there revolutionary new idea that Paul just came up with. Instead, what he's doing is he's telling his friend to embrace a core doctrine of Christianity... And that is that there is neither slave nor free. You are all one in Christ. That's Galatians 3. If the doctrines we proclaim, we're in a denomination that loves doctrine, loves to talk about doctrine, loves to feel good about our doctrine. If the doctrines that we proclaim can't be worked out in our day-to-day lives, what good are they? True doctrine informs our lives. At least it ought to, and it should tell us then how to live. Our treatment of one another 
should come from the overflow of hearts that have been transformed by the grace of Christ at work in us, knowing that he has stepped between us, the sinful ones, and God, the offended party, and he has made peace. We are to follow that pattern. This letter is about so much more than just the moment that Philemon sees Onesimus at his door. If Jesus changes us, the question is, well, then who are we to each other? Who are we to each other? It's a doctrinal question, and doctrine informs life. If Paul's initial appeal for mercy on Onesimus' behalf wasn't enough, he concludes the part that we just read with this um, kind of shrewd case for why Philemon should respond by receiving Onesimus as a brother. And this, to me is uh, one day I want to gather up, if you ever come across places in Scripture that you feel um, have an element of humor in them, I would love for you to email me those, because I want to write about humor in Scripture sometime, because this is a place where, you, where there's humor involved here. It's kind of hard not to keep a straight face when you look at how Paul works Philemon, uh, for lack of a better way to say it. He does it very redemptively, but there's, there's, he, he's very persuasive. He's very shrewd in what he does, and there's no doubt that Paul is hoping to persuade Philemon to respond in a particular way. And because there's no doubt of that, there's no doubt that he developed his argument and that he chose his words as influentially as he possibly could. So, for example, in verses 13 and 14, he says to Philemon, I would have been glad to keep Onesimus here that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. So he's tangling Philemon up in the relationship that already exists between Paul and Onesimus, which is a relationship where Onesimus has been caring well for Paul. And so what he's doing here is he's defending Onesimus, first of all. And in his defense, what he's telling Philemon is he's saying, I presume, Philemon, that if you had been here in Rome yourself, you would have wanted to help me in much the same way that Onesimus has helped me. I would presume you would have wanted to do that. And from that, he then credits Philemon for Onesimus's service as his substitute. So basically he's saying, I, I, I regard the way that Onesimus has cared for me as a form of you caring for me. To imply that Paul regards Onesimus' service to him as a gift from Philemon is shrewd. And then creatively and carefully, Paul leads his friend to the conclusion that he knows Philemon has to arrive at on his own, but appreciate the way that he balances appeal to love with a tight case for his obligation to love. Paul doesn't just ask Philemon to embrace the practical application of his beliefs. What he does instead is he takes for granted that Philemon is going to want to embrace the practical applications of his belief. You believe this, and so therefore, this is what will follow, right? Because doctrine informs life. What good is doctrine 
if it doesn't shape how we live. Christians pray these words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so Paul just presumes that Philemon's desire is not for strife, but is for peace that is achieved through forgiveness. What else could it be? Doctrine informs life. And it doesn't just inform life. Doctrine also tells the story of the gospel. See, the reason our doctrine is to inform our life choices is because our doctrine tells the story of the gospel. Paul's expectations for Philemon are rooted in the fact that Jesus has transformed our lives. And so in verses 18 to 20, he talks about a debt, a debt that Onesimus may owe to Philemon. And in his own hand, this is the part that just gets me. In his own hand, he writes and says, that debt is mine now. So whatever Onesimus owes you, I owe you instead. So put it on my tab. Think about my tab. Put it on my tab. Onesimus's debt is mine. And then Paul leaves it to Philemon to call in the debt. How does he do it? He gives him another shrewd question that goes something like this. This is my paraphrase, but it's what's happening in the text. He says, listen, Onesimus' debt is mine. So that's mine. He's not in this anymore. It's mine. And I will repay it. Don't forget that you owe me your life. <laughs> so in light of the fact that I've taken his debt, but you owe me your life, how much do I owe you? I mean, that's just genius, isn't it? But what's he doing? He's leading his friend to say, your doctrine matters, and it should inform how you live, and I'm helping you see how it should inform how you live right now. Paul wants Philemon to do for Onesimus what Paul did for Philemon, and that is set him free. Set him free. And we find ourselves here at times between the offender and the offended, and it's messy because seldom does fault rest with just one party. But Paul's argument in this letter is to appeal to the finished work of Christ. If you are both people who are dependent on the finished work of Christ, then you have to let that define who you are to each other and what you're to do with one another. And so Paul gets strong at the end and he says, listen, just cards on the table, I want refreshment from the Lord from you. I want you to do the right thing. And I'm confident that you will do even more than I say. It's right for us as Christians to expect some benefit in the Lord from one another. It's why we do church membership, in fact. When we do church membership, we, it's a way of saying, there's a way that I intend to live. I won't live it perfectly. But as a part of this community, there's a way that I intend to live in a way that is life-giving and contributing and helpful and not destructive and not divisive and not in a way that burns people and families to the ground, but in a way that builds up. And as we receive members, we say yes, and we expect that from you. We don't expect perfection, but thank you. And you can expect that from us because we're a community of faith who has, that's been transformed by the work of Christ. <coughs> How do we do this? How do we give refreshment in the Lord? Well, we live out our doctrine, and by doing so, 
We apply it to our lives, and in the act of doing that, it tells again the story of the love of Christ, rich and free. Doctrine tells the story of the gospel. Living by it shows the gospel. And I pray that like the old apostle, we would hold what others owe us with a very open hand and that we would want the gospel to win our arguments. May we so live to set one another free in the grace and mercy of Christ as we have been set free. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, this story, this letter, the ways that we see not only gospel truth and the way that we not only see doctrine, but the way that we see doctrine applied and lived out, the way we see it contended for from one follower of yours in the life of another follower of yours. And Father, we ask that you would give us great humility as we think about this letter existing in the canon of Scripture, how part of the reason it exists is to be an example for us of how two people who are following Christ, who have something between them, ought to regard one another. Lord, give us the humility to be willing to regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if there is struggle between us, that our starting point would be that you have transformed us And out of that, that you have made us brothers and sisters with one another, that out of that doctrinal truth, our responses would flow. And give us humility and mercy with one another. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.